Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, verses 1 through 9. I was ready to be sought out by those who did not ask, to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that did not call on my name. I held out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and offering incense on bricks, who sit inside tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh with broth of abominable things in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long. See, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their laps, their iniquities and their ancestors' iniquities altogether, says the Lord. Because they offered incense on the mountains and reviled me on the hills, I will measure into their laps full payment for their actions. Thus says the Lord, as the wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah, inheritors of my mountains. My chosen shall inherit it, and my servants shall settle there. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. The phrase litmus test originally came from chemistry, which you may not have known about. A litmus test is a test usually done using litmus paper to determine whether a solution is an acid or a base on the pH scale. You may remember playing with litmus paper in chemistry test to test the pH of different solutions. Or maybe you had to do it to help maintain a pool or a hot tub. If you're a gardener, you've maybe used a litmus test to test the quality of the soil. Using a litmus test as the ultimate test 
is curious for a couple different reasons. First, neither acids or bases are inherently good or bad, and we need both to keep things in balance. Another curious thing about chemistry litmus tests is that even they have their limitations. Although litmus tests can give you a pretty good sense of the quality of the soil, they're not always very useful when working in a lab, especially in a professional sense. And that's because they're very limited in their accuracy. They can explain certain things well, but so many other things not so well at all. As humans, we often use litmus tests to figure out who belongs and who doesn't. More often than not, we base this evaluation on one single factor that we feel defines someone's character or the character of something. But our scripture from Galatians this morning challenges us to think about another way of defining belonging. We see from Galatians that the early church was in many ways struggling with their own litmus test about who is in and who is out and what was essential from their past and what was not. Could Gentiles really be part of this offshoot of Judaism that followed Jesus? And if they could, which parts of the law from the Torah did they have to follow, and which ones didn't they? In Galatians, Paul was speaking to the church in Galatia, which was mostly Gentiles. But there were certain teachers saying that the males in the church in Galatia there, the Gentile males, must also be circumcised. They were setting up their own litmus tests about who belonged in God's kingdom and who did not. Our church today may not be all that different from the early church in Galatia. We may not have such a sharp difference in social status between Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, slaves and free people, males and females, but we certainly have our own norms about who is in and who's out. These beliefs about who belongs can be based on the spoken and sometimes unspoken norms from the media, our own social circles, our families, or maybe even our churches. It's so human to have categories of what's good and bad, what's acceptable and what's not, who we like and who we don't. It's so human to draw these lines in the sand. And yet Jesus is calling us to something different. The gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry and also Paul's letter here show us more about the relationship between law and faith. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. The law itself wasn't bad. Jesus came to fulfill it. The law was a tutor that helped to guide and train humanity and teach them God's wisdom, the fullness of which was expressed in Jesus, the anointed one. The law can be useful for a variety of things. But Jesus was the ultimate embodiment of all the teachings and the wisdom of the law. And Jesus himself was raised from very young to follow the law. We can get a better sense of this relationship between the past and this new reality in Christ through a translation of the Bible called The Voice. Here's how The Voice translates this passage. Before faith came on the scene, the law did its best to keep us in line, restraining us until the faith that was to come was fully revealed. So then the law was like a tutor, assigned to train us and point us to the anointed, so that we will be acquitted of all wrong and made right by faith. But now that true faith has come, we have no need for a tutor. 
It is your faith in the anointed Jesus that makes all of you children of God, because all of you who have been initiated into the anointed one through the ceremonial washing of baptism have put him on. It makes no difference whether you are a Jew or a Greek, a slave or a freeman, a man or a woman, because in Jesus, the anointed, the liberating king, you are all one. Since you belong to him and are now subject to his power, you are the descendant of Abraham and the heir of God's glory according to this promise. Personally, I like this translation because it makes it clear that the law isn't inherently bad. This translation calls the law our tutor rather than disciplinarian because it's more accurate to translate this Greek word that describes the role of Christ as tutor rather than disciplinarian. This word refers to a slave in a household who supervised children, trying to prevent bad behavior. This law helped to guide people towards good behavior. If there's any of you out there that like bowling, a bowling metaphor to help us understand this relationship between law and faith is that the law is a little bit like having bumpers on the sides of the lanes that help us to be successful. Now, I don't know about you all, but when I'm bowling, I really need some bumpers. <laughs> the law was never meant to be exclusive and should not prevent Gentile Christians from having access to the inheritance that God promised to Abraham and his family. Paul says, you are a descendant of Abraham and heir to God's glory according to this promise. Because of what Christ has done, Gentiles can also be considered God's chosen people like the Jews, and all of God's promises now apply to them too. The law was never meant to be exclusionary, and neither is this faith that Paul speaks of. Ironically, when we are, we are being just as exclusionary as those who use the law to divide when we say that the law isn't useful or it has no place in the world today. And that's because we're being dismissive of the people for whom the law does matter. Paul reminds us here not to make so many irrelevant human distinctions. Paul's point is that we are in a new age since we stand on this side of Christ's death and resurrection. Now humanity can experience a larger baptism, a cleansing from our sin in a larger cosmic sense. Through this work of Christ, we can be cleansed from these broken relationships to God and to others. Paul makes a list of contrasts, man or woman, Jew or Greek, meaning Gentile, slave or free person, one of which was superior to the other during this time. In the world of Jesus, men were seen as superior to women, free people superior to slaves. And in this early church, some teachers were saying that being Jewish was superior to being a Gentile. What Christ did for us levels the playing field between those with higher status and those of lower. This leveling of status may not necessarily be reflected in society, but it's the way God sees things and how Christ teaches us to treat one another. It doesn't mean that the terms and names of different groups will cease to be, nor does it define how these groups will be in society, but it does show us how the church should be. New Testament scholar Richard Hayes describes it in this way. If the church is to be a sign and foretaste of the new creation, it must be a community in which gender distinctions, like the ethnic and social distinctions noted in the first two parts of this baptismal formula, 
that they've lost their power to divide and to oppress. All are equal through Christ. All belong. When we feel like we belong, we can come to believe. And part of that believing is understanding that we are a beloved child of God and that everyone else is too. As Henry Nouwen puts it in one of our summer book reads, Life of the Beloved, to be chosen as the beloved of God is something radically different. Instead of excluding others, it includes others. Instead of rejecting others as less valuable, it accepts others in their own uniqueness. It's not a competition, but a compassionate choice. Our minds have great difficulty in coming to grips with such a reality. Our minds have great difficulty coming to grips with such a reality, this reality of our new life in Christ as siblings in Christ, because it's so much easier said than done. Most of us may not realize it, but we often have our own litmus tests for who belongs and who doesn't. We may look down on people who don't have a certain level of education because we assume they're ignorant. Or maybe we're not as welcoming to non-Christians or people who didn't grow up Presbyterian. Or maybe we have litmus tests about people who belong to certain political parties, even saying things like, that person shouldn't call themselves a Christian and belong to that political party. Sometimes our church accidentally sets up unspoken norms, unspoken litmus tests for who belongs and who doesn't. Sometimes we can even carry our own insecurities about whether we truly belong, doing certain things to cover up our imposter syndrome feelings. Our minds have trouble coming to grips with Christ's call to practice belonging because it requires us to die to our former selves. Our former selves are the selves that drew lines in the sand, that demanded that everyone pass a litmus test for our acceptance and love. Even the prophet Isaiah calls us to recognize the value of each person and their perspective. He said not to destroy the grapes that seem like they won't work because they still have a bit of juice. We need to think about difference in this way. What is good in each different perspective we hear then it can help us to sharpen our own understanding help us to grow as people, and to learn more about God. There's a nugget of wisdom in what everyone has to offer us, so we shouldn't exclude anyone or their perspective. We need to accept our belonging to one another, for Christ has called us to live together as one. And this means being more intentional about not using our litmus test to decide who's a good Christian and who's not, who belongs and who doesn't, It isn't up to us to decide who's worthy of belonging and who isn't. Feeling like you belong can be truly transformational. Oftentimes, it's hard for people to grow without this feeling of belonging. The mother of a friend of mine gave him up around age five. And from that time until he was about 18 years old, he was at the mercy of of family and friends that would take him in, and then eventually the foster care system. At the age of 21, a few years after becoming a legal adult, um, something surprising happened. He met a family of three, a mom, a dad, and a teenage girl. After spending some time with them, he realized 
that it was the first time he felt truly comfortable in his whole life. A year later, something even more surprising happened. This couple decided they wanted to adopt him as their son. He was 21 years old by this point, so he was already a legal adult, and technically, he didn't need, he didn't need guardians or parents to take care of him. But he, they decided to go through with the adoption. They did end up adopting him, and it, was, it had a tremendous impact on his life. For the first time in his life since his grandma, someone had actually chosen him. It was the first time he had a family that accepted him fully for who he was without an agenda. His family became the anchor from which he was able to grow and thrive. And he recently just graduated from, um, with a master's degree from a good college. Feeling like he actually had a place to belong was what helped him to get there. When we Presbyterian ministers baptize children, we will sometimes say, in baptism, God claims us and seals us to show us that we belong to God. God frees us from sin and death, uniting us with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. Through baptism, God claims us as God's own before we can do anything to earn it. We baptize infants because we believe it's important for them to have a place where they belong, a place where they have a church family that can nurture them and help them understand what it means to be a beloved child of God. This coming Sunday, a week from today, we'll baptize a few babies and we'll be reminded of how powerful baptism is. Never underestimate how powerful it can be when someone feels like they fully belong. So let us live into this call, this new unity we have in Christ to practice this belonging. Let us remind one another, sometimes even out loud, that each and every one of us belongs. And sometimes we have to have the hard and awkward conversations to acknowledge when we're not practicing this belonging very well. None of us how to know how to do this call perfectly. We're all wrestling with this, walking this road, trying to figure out which way to go. This is a difficult call, and we constantly mess up and have to start over. But even when we do mess up, we still belong, because God's grace abounds, cleansing us anew and constantly giving us new chances. And nothing can erase our belonging to God. Amen. Please continue with me in prayer for the needs of the church, the whole human family, and the world. I invite you to be seated and to join your hearts with mine as I open our prayer and then add your voices when I say, Gracious God, by responding with, Hear our prayer. Gracious God, let us continue in prayer. Holy One, we come to you from the midst of our individual days, different as each passing moment of Michigan summer weather, diverse and full of our own needs, our hopes, our expectations. We come to you in all our differences, and yet you invite us to be one body, one people, one creation, beloved and singing your praises. You affirm and you set aside our differences, loving them and loving us so that we might serve your realm of compassion and justice and peace together. 
And so we pray for all that distracts and divides us from that mission. For those who threaten war, those who are taxed with waging it, and all who suffer from it. Gracious God, hear our prayer. For those who are displaced, separated from their families and communities and without asylum, and for all who fear them. Gracious God, hear our prayer. For your church, that we may overcome divisions and live in the unity given to us in Christ. Gracious God, hear our prayer. For your creation, that the earth's wounds may be healed and that we may become better caretakers. Gracious God, hear our prayer. For those who experience grief and loss, who fight despair or struggle with addiction, for all who live without hope, gracious God, hear our prayer. For those who are ill in mind, body, or spirit and all who care for them, gracious God, hear our prayer. For the other burdens of our hearts, Gracious God, hear our prayer. Grateful for your mercy, we entrust these and all of our prayers, spoken and unspoken to you. Bless us in whatever way it is we need this day. Bless us to hear your voice, whispering love and hope for all of us, your gathered community, different and deeply beloved, praying together as Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.